I grew up in a neighborhood that had settled into waves of rolling hills adorned with a dense forest. If you worked your way through a particular grove of trees, you would come upon our secret place. A clearing ending at the tip of a steep cliff that watched over a lush expanse of immaculate countryside, stretching from our modest town all the way to the distant horizon. It was the last place the sun had touched before setting each night, and it remained in darkness the longest waiting for sunlight to come again. In the summer of 1987, it was there that my best friend and I did something unspeakable. In one way or another, we were made to pay for it. I invented a game called Overboard that we often played there. It went like this. One person, being the victim, would approach the edge of the cliff, face to face with their own mortality, suck in a deep breath and then yell, Overboard! to the ground before, dramatically pretending to jump or fall off. To the uninitiated, it would seem that they had fallen. But in reality, there was a small but sturdy overhang, a few feet beneath the edge that they had landed on. And then another person, the hero, or perhaps more, depending on the size of the victim, would pull them back to safety. Bill, who bravely boarded on stupidity, had perfected an impressive move in which he put his back to the cliff and faced me, drawing an imaginary revolver from his right hip. I drew mine in turn, and after a brief but frenzied shootout, he would clutch his chest, gasp out to one final breath, and tip effortlessly backwards onto the ledge below. Bill showcased this move the day that we brought Corey McBride to our clearing and taught him our game. Corey's family had moved here last fall, just in time for him to start middle school. Immediately, he took to Bill and me, following us around a recess like a lost puppy. Really, he wanted to be Bill's friend more than mine, and I didn't blame him. I think Bill was the kind of person that he wanted to be. He was in awe of Bill's performance of himself. The way he would without hesitation climb the tallest tree, or stand at the top of the stairs in front of the school, and make a bet with any passerby that he could jump all the way to the bottom. These endeavors rarely ended well for him. Bill himself, with his permanently scabbed and bruised elbows and knees, was living proof, but that was never the point. He would do or say anything if there was even the slightest chance that you would laugh at it. Corey's jaw dropped when Bill disappeared over the edge. Bill crouched on the ledge silently for a long time, just to mess with Corey, who had never seen such a thing before. I caught a flicker of terror in Corey's eyes, and I think for a moment, he truly believed that Bill was dead and he was next. Though I couldn't see him, I knew Bill was grinning like an idiot, hands clamped over his mouth to shield his hushed laughter. I knew he was reveling in the thrill of his trick, of knowing without even having to look that Corey had fallen for it. Playing right into Bill's hands, Corey took a few cautious steps towards the edge, peering over it in search of Bill. As soon as he got close enough, Bill's fingertips breached the surface, grabbing Corey's ankle. Startled, he let out a high-pitched yelp and he jumped back. Once I had stopped laughing, I went to retrieve Bill. 
There was a disturbing realization that I had when pulling him up. I could let go. I could drop him. And he would fall. And even worse, there is a small part inside of me that wanted to. I never wanted to hurt him. There was just some part of my brain that wanted to see what would happen. If I would really do it. And I imagined that I did. In my mind's eye, I let go of him and he dropped. I watched until he vanished. I stood on the ledge in profound horror of what I had done. There could be no one doing it. It was then that I first understood that some decisions have tangible consequences and that I could be the cause of them. After he was safely pulled up, I stepped back, feeling so guilty about what I had imagined doing and that I would not allow myself to look over the cliff at the ground below. Bill bounded towards Corey, howling with laughter. You should have seen your face. He put on an expression of mock terror, shrieking like the victim in a slasher movie. Corey laughed along with him, though he raised a hand to cover his reddening cheeks, self-conscious on how they revealed his embarrassment. But he perked up when Bill clapped him on the shoulder and pointed him to the edge. And now you... This would be his chance to prove himself. Corey stepped up to take his turn, tentatively peering over the edge, evaluating the narrow margin between safety on the overhang and certain death mere inches beyond it. In a shy voice, he let out a timid, overboard, and not so much jumped as gently lowered himself onto the ledge. Satisfied with his landing, he fell into bouts of nervous laughter for a few moments until his fear returned and he wanted to be pulled up. Corey was the smallest boy in our class, and even on his tiptoes, his outstretched hands were a good six inches below the edge of the cliff. He was completely dependent on us for survival. Sensing this, Bill and I hung our heads over the edge and told him that we're not going to help him pull him up. We laughed and exchanged glances with each other, the way children do when they first begin to experiment in small acts of cruelty. Of course we were going to pull him up eventually, but there was some primal instinct that compelled us to see how long we could keep it going. He begged us to help him, reaching his hands toward us with desperate fervor. Bill turned to me. Well, what do you think? Should we let him up? Hmm, that's a tough one. I scratched my head and I knitted my eyebrows together, pretending to be deep in thought. I don't think so. From his perch on the edge, Corey's eyes widened. I don't think he knew if I was kidding or not. And this thrilled me. Ouch, man, that's harsh. He winked. Bill made a show of shaking his head at me. Charlie Price, you are cold-blooded. Bill looked down at Corey and then back at me. I, on the other hand, in my infinite mercy, say we should give him a chance. What do you say? Should we give him a chance? I went along with his game. Maybe. Bill extended an arm down to Corey, 
and when he went to grab for it, he raised it just out of his reach. That's too high, Corey whined. The fear that I had noticed earlier had returned to Corey's eyes, but this time it went deeper. It went all the way down to his core. Perhaps for the first time in his life, Corey McBride was truly afraid. I can't reach. Hey, you gotta jump. Bill teased, dangling his fingers. Corey's only lifeline, over the edge. Corey's eyes followed every movement of that hand, calculating the chances of survival. Corey positioned himself underneath Bill's hand and jumped straight up. Just as his fingers were about to close around Bill's, Bill snatched his back. He extended it again, taunting Corey with each failed attempt. Corey began scrambling around in search for an escape, like an animal pacing in his cage. From the edge of the overhang, he charged forward and he jumped up. He almost made it. He managed to grab a hold of some grass and dirt, but they came loose and Corey lost his grip. I saw the unfolding terror in his eyes as he floated about in search of something to hold on to. The most horrifying thing I ever heard was the raw, violent sound that he let out as he fell. It was nothing like his scream when Bill had scared him. And this was real. What echoed off the cliffside and rang in my ears was the sound of unadulterated horror. Moments later came the snapping of branches and finally the dull thud of Corey's body on the rocks below. Bill and I stared over the edge in stunned silence, afraid to even breathe. We exchanged a glance, each of us looking for confirmation from the other that what we saw had really happened. We waited and listened, prayed for any signs of life below. All was still. Bill was the first to break the silence, leaping to his feet and raving about how he needed to come up with a plan. I said that we should tell her parents. Are you kidding? Bill said. I got grounded for a month for failing a math test. If my parents find out, they'll kill me. What if we call the police but don't tell them our names so they can't figure out that it was us? They can trace calls, he scoffed. And you were the one who said you wouldn't pull him up, and so you'll go to jail. But, Bill cut me off. This is murder. They'll give you the death penalty. He was right, I realized. I killed Corey McBride. We did. You killed him too, you know. We both killed him. We'll both go to jail. Double murder. Bill seemed to agree. Give me a minute. He paced around the clearing, deep in thought. I sat down in the grass, soaking up the last of the afternoon sun. I would not take my eyes off the edge of the cliff, hoping that Corey would climb back up. Bill came up with a plan he assured me was foolproof. We wouldn't say anything. When Corey's parents came looking for him, we would say that we had been playing in the woods on the other side of town, and that he had gone home an hour before we did. 
We swore to each other on our own graves that we would never tell the soul what we did to Corey McBride. It was easy to make the promise then, but it was a lot harder to keep it the next morning. When Corey's tear-stricken mother turned up on my doorstep, asking if I knew what had happened to her son, I stuck to the plan out of fear that I would be punished, but I wanted so badly to tell her the truth, if only to clear my conscience. I have no idea where he is, I told her, keeping my eyes down in the hopes that she would not see my obvious guilt. He told me that he was going to play with you and Bill, she begged. Please, you have to know something. He left an hour before we did. He said that he was going home. How could he have gotten lost when you were playing so close? She pointed towards the woods and my blood ran cold. We weren't over there. We were on the other side of town. How did she know where we were? Corey's deafening scream replayed in my mind. What if she heard the whole thing? Don't you dare lie to me! Her voice hitched, coming out in high-pitched bursts. Corey told me that you guys were playing over there. He's a good boy and he wouldn't lie to me. I wish Bill were here with me. He wouldn't even have to think to come up with a response that would exonerate us and get her off our trail. My words faltered. Well, we were over there. But uh, then we decided to go down to the creek. So we went over to the woods on the east side. She thought for a moment, analyzing my words. I hoped with everything that I had that she would believe me. Okay. She quietly nodded, wiping straight tears from her eyes. Okay. There was a town-wide search for the next three weeks that scoured the woods, the wrong woods, for any sign of Corey. Part of me hoped that they would find him, until I realized that if Corey was still alive, he would tell everybody what Bill and I had done. It was better that he was dead, I told myself. Better him than me. I was conscripted into the search by my mother, who woke me up one early morning to tell me we were going to look for that missing boy. Uh, Corey, is that what you said his name was? I nodded. You two were friends, right? He was in my class. Satisfied with my answers, we ate a quick breakfast and headed outside to join a few of our neighbors, who would be searching with us. I wondered why we were meeting so close to our house, when the search parties were under the impression that Corey was lost on the other side of town. I shook this thought off though, chalking it up to just another item in the long list of things adults did that made no sense to me. The group that I was part of was headed by a police officer. I saw that Bill and his parents were there too. I was glad. It would be easier to keep our story straight if we were both together. It was still hard to pretend I didn't know what had happened. I couldn't stop my eyes from wandering to the path that led to the cliff, even though I never said anything and nobody ever asked me. It felt like a lie not to tell them that I knew exactly where Corey was. My heart stopped when the officer began leading us into the woods. 
the right words. I was terrified. Did they know Bill and I were lying? Were they going to lead us right to the body so they could arrest us? And Bill felt it too. He rushed over to the officer and got his attention. We weren't playing over there. He protested, pointed in the opposite direction. We were on the east side. The officer nodded. I know, son, but we haven't found anything over there. We just want to be absolutely sure we've looked everywhere. We started on a path that I had never used before. I could sense from the decline of the terrain that we were headed for the base of the cliff. It wasn't the heat that made me sweat as we got closer and closer to the bottom. Everyone took their time searching when the ground leveled off. The woods weren't as dense here, but there were still lots of places a small boy like Corey could fit. I played my part, turning over logs and checking behind every tree, intermittently calling his name just like everybody else. My worst fears were about to come true as the group began moving closer to the cliff. I looked for Bill, hoping that he would know what to do, but he had disappeared. I looked around and he was nowhere to be found. I was on my own this time. Maybe I could trip to stall this time. I could pretend to sprain my ankle, and then they might call the whole thing off for the day. While I was searching for the perfect rock to trip over, Bill's voice cut through the trees. Over here! He yelled. I still couldn't see him, but his voice came from far enough behind us that it might keep everybody away from the cliff for a while. The officer started towards the sound of his voice, and the group followed with him. The sounds of twigs snapping grew louder, and then I saw Bill running between the trees carrying something in his hands. Winded, he bent over, hands on his knees to catch his breath. Immediately, I noticed something was different. His plaid shirt was now buttoned up, and then I saw what he was holding. This is Corey's shirt. He handed the officer a torn piece of muddy fabric, the mutilated remnants of the white t-shirt Bill had been wearing minutes before. It was probably still warm. Bill must have drug it through the dirt to make it look like it had been there for days, and torn it to disguise the fact that it would have been too big for Corey. The officer held it out for me to corroborate the story. Bill shot a glare that warned me to go along with it. I inspected it for a moment. Yeah, um, that's what he was wearing. I sighed with relief when the officer instructed Bill to show him where he had found the shirt. Bill led the group far away from the cliff. I was impressed with his quick thinking, and grateful that we didn't have to rely on my plan. I don't know where Bill came up with these ideas. Not only did he put good distance between us and Corey's body, he even broke some low-hanging branches and draped stray pieces of the shirt over them, creating the illusion of Corey's path conveniently leading in the opposite direction of where he actually was. The search drug on for weeks, but I knew that it was pointless. I was certain that Corey was dead just a few days after it had happened. 
when I saw him standing in the middle of the street outside of my house. At first, I thought that maybe he had come back, until I watched a car drive right through him, and he was still standing after it had passed. Cautiously, I stepped outside and I approached him. Corey? I whispered, looking around to make sure that no one was outside to see me talking to a dead boy. He didn't answer, but he looked at me as if he had heard. He looked so real, not like the ghost from the old movies my older brother and I often watched after our parents went to bed. The ghosts who were deathly pale, almost transparent, who moaned and cried and rattled chains. Corey looked just as he always had. I reached out my hand towards him. I had to see if he was solid. But just before my fingertips could brush his shoulder, he turned and sprinted away. He paused between the two crooked trees that guarded the path leading to the cliffside to see if I was following. I hadn't moved, and as much as I wanted to, I couldn't bring myself to return to the scene of the crime. I couldn't handle being so close to his body. Knowing that it was so easy to get to, even when countless search parties had spent countless hours searching for it mere miles away. Once Corey saw that I wasn't coming with him, he darted off, disappearing into the thick summer foliage. I remained in the streets, dumbfounded, for a few minutes unsure of what I just saw. I might have stayed there all afternoon, trying to figure out if the Corey I saw was real or if I was losing my mind. If not for the blare of a car horn that brought me back to my senses and sent me running back inside. Though he avoided my waking life, I was not free of Corey. Every night since, he infected all my dreams like a cancer. A manifestation of the darkness that had been growing inside me since that day who had come to build my personal hell. Not even in my dreams would little dead Corey McBride speak to me. But I knew what he wanted to say. You'll rot in hell for this. He must have been thinking. If I was real, I would kill you the way that you killed me. Every night, he would break before my eyes. The way that I know his body did when it landed on the rocks that day. His bones snapping and coming back together crooked to form limbs like knotted robes. He would slither up my bed until he was nose to nose with me, and I would beg him for forgiveness. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. I was going to pull you up, I swear. The anger burning behind his eyes told me, Not good enough. I didn't know. We were just having fun. I didn't think that you would fall. At this, he would peel himself off of me and begin to pace around my room. The hollow thumping of his broken legs uneven stride, a metronome counting the frantic pounding of my heart. The most disturbing part of these dreams happened just before I would wake up. Corey would stop next to my bed and reach for my arm. Though I tried to pull it away from him, I could not free myself from his grasp. His icy fingers held my arm in place. I felt the sting of his jagged fingernail dragging across my forearm, slicing five bloody lines into my skin. There was desperation in his eyes, 
as if he expected me to understand the meaning behind them. I knew he was trying to send me a message, but I couldn't for the life of me figure out what it was. I would always wake up cold the next morning, and with the sense that I was one day closer to some sort of cosmic retribution for what I had done. When the scales were tipped, the universe had ways of righting itself, and I figured that I must have been pretty high on that list. The search for Corey simmered over the coming months as he remained missing. I think it was too sad for everybody to continue looking, when they always came up empty-handed. Come November, they had given up the search entirely and resigned themselves to assume the worst. His family held a memorial service at their church. Bill and I exchanged knowing glances but would not allow ourselves near each other, unconsciously reaffirming our pact. At the altar, Corey's mother wept over the small casket that would be buried empty, christening his afterlife with her tears. The box was disturbingly small, and the sight of it steered my mind to disturbing things. Like, how do they fit somebody in there? And is it possible for a child so small to die? And when I go, will I be in a box like that? I realized in that moment why Corey still tormented me. All the sadness and uncertainty left behind after his death had made him restless. And because he couldn't sleep, he came to haunt me. I didn't cry at the memorial. I think my parents wanted me to because they kept assuming that it was okay. It was natural if I did. I refused to allow myself to cry, because if I did, it would mean that I was guilty. I never cried over Corey McBride, because I thought that if I didn't, then maybe it didn't really happen. Instead, I mourned him vicariously through the guilt of what I had done, and the fear that had forced me to bury it. The time moved on, fading Corey McBride into a distant but tragic memory. Another of the thousands of missing children who are never found. Our secret was safe, it seemed. But the weight of what we had done strained our friendship. No matter what we did, Corey was the only thing on our minds. I didn't want to talk about it at all. But for the first few weeks, all Bill did was talk about it. Perhaps this was an attempt to alleviate his own guilt. He spoke of Corey as an old legend handed down through generations, and told the story as an outsider. Bill talked about him so much that, eventually, it sounded like something that hadn't happened to him, but something that he had heard about. Bill could share this story between us like a piece of gossip that he had picked up on the playground. On several occasions, he drove me to ugly fits of rage, until one day, I told him that if he ever said the name Corey McBride ever again, he would be picking up his own teeth. That was the last he spoke of that summer for a long time. Bill and I grew apart over the next several years, despite our best efforts, and became too painful for the two of us to be near each other. It would be many years before we had a proper reunion, if you could call it that. I had come home after college, and just days later, I was invited to Bill's funeral. From what I had heard, he shot himself. Even though I hadn't spoken to him in years, 
I was absolutely devastated by it. Since we had met in kindergarten, I considered him my best friend. He had an aura about him that I gravitated towards. He was always the center of attention, but not in an arrogant way. He was just always doing something worth looking at. I couldn't help but wonder why he did it. And did it have something to do with Corey McBride? The whole ordeal had changed him, and though he rarely showed it, I could see that the guilt had wounded him. I felt horrible thinking that, because that would mean that I was responsible for not one death but two. Only once did he ever bring up a Corey McBride to me after that summer. Back in high school, he cornered me at lunch and said that he absolutely had to speak with me. He had pulled me into the empty men's room outside the cafeteria and he locked the door. His eyes were wild. His entire body jolted with nervous energy. He's not there. What? Who's not where? Even though there was no one around to overhear, Bill dropped his voice. Corey's not there. He's gone. I shivered at the mere mention of him. His name was like a curse, an ancient incantation that when spoken, brought upon unspeakable evil. Look, I've been having these dreams. Bill pushed his hair out of his eyes and sucked in a deep breath. It's the same one every time. I'm in the woods where we used to play, but this time, I'm at the bottom of a cliff. It's dark, and I feel like someone's watching me. It doesn't matter which way I try to go, because every time I turn, I'm still facing the cliff. And so I walk forward, and right when the trees are about to part, I'm sure that I'm going to see his body. I wake up. And you're alone in the dream, I asked, thinking of my own, wondering if Bill sees Corey too. I consider asking him, but I thought better of it. One of us going crazy was enough. Yeah, but that's not the point. He brushed off my question. Yesterday, I went back. I had to know. And when I got down to the base of the cliff, there was nothing there. I looked everywhere, too. His hand drew a map in the air between us, weaving between the trees until it came to a sharp halt. There's a bunch of trees all around it, but then there's a clearing at the bottom. There's nowhere he could have hidden. So? I sounded calm, but inside, I felt his shake in his bill light. How could he not be there? Maybe Bill just didn't look hard enough. Maybe he had missed a spot. Maybe he's decomposed by now. I tried to comfort myself, but I knew that it wasn't true. So? He was fuming. So where's the goddamn body, Charlie? I don't know. I shrugged. I was growing irritated. Why couldn't he just let it go? Keep it to himself like I had. I snapped at him. He's been out there for years. There are coyotes all over those woods. Maybe one ate him. Bill shook his head. 
where do you think he went then, huh? I raised my voice, not caring who might hear. I was furious at him for bringing back all of those memories. I just wanted to forget about what had happened. I wanted to move on. He must have fallen a hundred feet. You just don't get up and walk away from that. You... Bill had begun to cry, burying his face in his hands. I caught sight of the scene in the mirror. Bill's shoulders heaving between sobs and myself, so mad that my whole face had gone red, standing over him. I took a deep breath, collecting myself. Softening my tone and forcing away my angry glare, I pulled him into a hug. When I let go, I kept a firm hand on his shoulder and I locked eyes with him. He's dead, Bill. Corey McBride is dead. No. He kept shaking his head. No, he's still alive. He's out there and one day he'll come looking for us. He's gonna kill us. I just know it. That sounds insane. I told him. Not really. He had stopped crying, but he hadn't wiped away the tears streaking from his face. I mean, wouldn't you? If all of this happened to you, wouldn't you want revenge? I would. And I knew that the Cory in my dreams wanted something too. It doesn't matter what he wants. He's dead and he can't do anything about it. Bill opened his mouth to protest, but I cut him off. I've got class, I said, unlocking the door. I slung my backpack over my shoulder and I left him there. I didn't look back. This memory haunted me at the funeral. It pounded against the inside of my skull as I approached Bill's coffin to pay my respects. I couldn't believe this was happening. I rested my hand on the polished lid. It was closed. It reminded me of Corey's empty coffin. And part of me wondered what was inside this one. He's not there. Played over and over again. And the image of Corey falling played against the back of my eyelids. We had killed him. He just wanted to be our friend. And we left him alone to rot. All these years, we never told anyone. His poor parents never found out. I imagined them up late worrying over him. That small flicker of panic and hope every time the phone rang, and the disappointment when the voice on the other end still didn't know what had happened to Corey. I wondered if they left their porch lights on all night, hoping that one day their son would see them and then come home. A sickening thought flickered in my mind. Did Bill hate me? Did he resent me for not believing him? For not being a good friend? For never reaching out, even though I knew the guilt was eating him alive? What if Corey was the reason Bill blew his brains out? What if it was me? I was numb driving home after Bill's funeral. The streets of my childhood that I had traveled a hundred times felt foreign. I felt like a stranger trespassing in somebody else's life. Nothing was real until I caught sight of those woods. I stopped my car in the middle of the street 
in front of the house that I grew up in. Shaken by the sight of the two crooked trees marking the entrance to the path leading to the cliffside. The guilt that I had been nursing since that summer exploded out of me in tongues of wicked fire. I became furious, pounding my fist against the steering wheel and cursing myself for what had happened all those years ago. I hated those woods. I hated that stupid game. I hated this town and I hated Bill for killing himself. I hated Corey for falling. And I hated myself because it was all my fault. There will come a day when I must reconcile what I have done with whoever's out there keeping score. And I'm not ready. I doubt I'll ever be. How can I look anyone or anything in the eye and say what I did to little Corey McBride that summer afternoon? Who will ever forgive me? Can I forgive myself? Should I even beg for mercy? When I raised my head and I looked out of the windshield, I saw Corey McBride standing in the street the way that he had when I was a kid. I was shocked to see him in the daytime and to see how small he really was. He was still a child. I had grown up and he should have too. I stepped out of my car and I approached him. I got down on my knees, eye level with him. And I begged. What do you want from me? Just like he had all those years ago, he made for the woods. This time, I followed. He brought me to the edge of the cliff, as I suspected he would. My whole body shook as the memories of my childhood flooded back to me. They were so real it felt like I relived each one as it flashed through my mind. I'm sorry, I said to the evening sun as it watched over my misery. I'm sorry, I said to the ground far below. I'm sorry, I said to Corey, who was down there somewhere. Corey beckoned me to a concealed path that I had never seen before. I followed him down it for what felt like an eternity. I soon realized that it led down to the base of the cliff. I resented him for what he was going to make me see, but I followed anyway because I felt that I owed him as much. I wondered what it was like when Bill took his journey, and if I would also be led to nothing. When we reached the base of the cliff, I looked around. There was nothing there. Craning my neck upwards, I saw the place that he had fallen from, but there was still no trace of him beneath it. Where could he have gone? I searched the entire clearing and I still didn't find him. Was Bill right? He had to have landed here, but there was nothing save for a collection of rocks and trees. I knew that I would have to go back soon. It was getting dark. Moments before I turned to leave, I saw him. Corey stood beside a small opening at the base of the cliff. What I found inside surpassed all of my worst fears. At my feet laid what remained of Corey McBride. 
The skeleton was curled into the fetal position, cradling two badly broken legs. Next to his head lay five jagged tally marks carved into the dirt. He had miraculously survived the fall and drug himself into this hole, where he was never found because we told our parents we were playing in the woods on the other side of the neighborhood. Five days he laid there, cold, alone, and afraid, waiting to be saved. And he would have been, had Bill and I not led the search party in the wrong direction. Five days he had suffered because of me. Corey looked up at me as if to ask, Now do you finally understand what you've done? I did, and I wept. <laughs>